You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Dr. Richard Bernier is assistant professor in the Department of Theological Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. A member of the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church, his teaching and research are focused on the history of Christian spirituality and on practical and pastoral implications of Christian beliefs. Welcome, Dr. Bernier, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thanks so much, David. I'm very glad to be here. Well, Dr. Bernier, I wanted to visit with you because of an article you wrote, which was posted at Eclectic Orthodoxy. And the title of the article is, Where is Everybody? Apocatastasis, Divine Charity, and Freedom. And I thought you began the article in an interesting way with the scene from the movie, The Magnificent Seven. Could you tell us a little bit about why you started the article this way? Sure. Yeah. So it's a, a scene uh, towards the beginning of the, the the recent remake of The Magnificent Seven with Denzel Washington and Peter Sarsgaard, and uh, it's an all-star cast. It's a really it's a really interesting movie. But what struck me about one scene, and it's the scene that I share in the article, um, it's when we meet Emma Cullen, who's a a townswoman whose husband has been killed along with many other innocent people by this just utter utter villain, Bartholomew Bogue. Uh, uh, when we meet him, he's a thoroughly unredeemed individual, malicious, cruel, uh, hurtful, and so on. And so when we meet Emma Cullen, she's sought out the help of Sam Chisholm, who turns out to be the protagonist of the film. And she wants, in short, she wants Bartholomew Bogue done away with. She wants him killed. She wants him stopped. And after a, a bit of back and forth, uh, the character of Sam Chisholm asks her, so you seek revenge. And her reply is, I seek righteousness, as we all should, but I'll settle for revenge. And what struck me about that scene as relevant to the theme of punishment, the theme of hope, is that it's very human, it's very normal to seek revenge. We, we experience uh, injustice in our own lives, we see injustice around us. It's very normal to desire revenge. And yet, as Christians, we also know that there's there's more going on there, that the, the scriptures are not about revenge. The scriptures are about uh, hope in God's transformation of the world. And um, so it's that's the uh, that's that's the idea that this contrast between revenge and righteousness. I think the way some people look at Christianity is maybe I shouldn't seek revenge in this world because revenge belongs to God and it's God who will put into hell forever. The, the bad guys. And so for some people, the idea of hell works as the, that's the ultimate sort of balance of the just eternal justice is yes, you can get away with it in this life maybe, but God will get you in the end and put you in hell forever. And so the idea of hell is a comfort to people in the idea that, that these bad guys will be done away with and we'll never have to see them again. Well, absolutely. I think that's exactly right, that the, there can be something reassuring or comforting about the idea of punishment after death, of post-mortem punishment, because it gives us the hope that ultimately 
no matter how much evil may seem to triumph in this life, it won't actually triumph in the end. But what the what Emma Cullen's response, I seek righteousness, but I'll settle for revenge, it helps us to see that whatever God is up to, the God we encounter in the life of Christ, the God we encounter in the scriptures, is not really about revenge in the sense purely of retribution. Um, the, the hope we have as Christians is that righteousness will will be the, the end of the story. And what interests me in the question of apocatastasis, the, 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 the idea of universalism, is the way the, the hope in universal salvation seems so much more consistent with what Christians believe about God as a God of righteousness, not of revenge. Well, in your article, you focus or you sort of be, you use a specific verse to begin the focus of your article, and it's a verse from First Timothy about God's will for all to be saved. Could you tell us a little bit about this verse and why you wanted to start with it? Sure. It's it's uh it's Paul is uh, writing to Timothy and says God God desires that all people should be saved. Um, and I I chose it because it's 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 short and punchy and and really captures in just a few words, the the larger hope, as as uh, some have called it, uh, title of a couple of books by Ilaria Ramelli and Robin Perry, for example, this larger hope that all human beings will ultimately be saved. In this, in this verse from Timothy, Paul says it in black and white, that God desires all people to be saved. But my interest isn't in a, in a proof text or sort of a, a, a verse that, that uh, that I'm claiming settles the whole question. I, I chose that verse because it, it captures a, a theme that's pervasive in Paul, the, the theme of Christ triumphing over evil, the theme of Christ bringing life to the whole cosmos. And so I chose that verse as being one especially clear example of a theme we see throughout the letters of Paul and indeed uh, and indeed in the in the Gospels, but particularly in Paul. Well, you know, this is an in, in important question about what is God's will, because we might think, well, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then whatever God wills in creation, we would imagine God would know and be able to accomplish in creation. And so the the question of what is it exactly that God does will in salvation turns out to be an incredibly important question. But Christian eschatology, especially in the Western Church, has been decidedly pessimistic about the salvation of all and and has not seen that that was ever God's really intention in creation in the first place. I I think it's uh I think it's right to 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 qualify that observation in terms of western eschatology because the uh, of course the the Christian church historically arose originally in in, in the Holy Land in Palestine Israel and the early church sprang up in the deserts of Egypt and Syria and Palestine and through the missionary efforts of Paul and others spread further afield to Greece and, and further east and further west. And for many people, Christianity and Western Christianity, in other words, the Christianity that arose from the Latin speaking part of, of Europe, Christianity and Western Christianity are practically synonymous. But but for for much of Christian history, that, that wasn't the case. And even Western Christianity is not monolithic. The, 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 the faith, as interpreted by John Calvin, springs from Roman Catholic soil, we could say. But, but uh, 
even there, there's a, there's a diversity of views within the Roman Catholic tradition. And so it's true that uh, Western Christian eschatology has tended to be, has tended to narrow the scope of that salvation, has tended to narrow the number of people who, who it believes will be saved. But that's partly, that's partly a misunderstanding, I think, even of the Western Christian tradition. The, the tradition itself um, is much more diverse than that. And certainly if we extend our understanding of Christianity to the to Greek and Syriac Christianity, we see that there's a lot more there's a lot more openness to the possibility uh, of salvation for all than we might initially uh, suspect. In your article, you make it clear that you think the stakes are pretty high when it comes to the necessity of rethinking our notions about how God goes about punishing or or bringing judgment. You wrote in your article that such a notion of a never-ending, non-medicinal punishment is monstrous, plain and simple. No amount of mental or verbal gymnastics can really make intelligible the claim that an utterly loving and just God deliberately sentences some of his rational creatures to an eternity of unbroken anguish, whatever form it takes, without even sleep or coma to alleviate their grief, and with no healing or remediation possible. Would you say a little more about that? Yeah, I think that, that perhaps this is a good place to come back to those two terms we, we started with, revenge and righteousness. Again, as understandable as it may be, when, when we experience injustice or when we see terrible injustice in the world, it's it's very normal, it's very understandable to to want retribution. That's a very human reaction. And so when we think of of some obviously malicious individual suffering after death for the evil they did in this life at first glance it seems like a a legitimate like even a wholesome or a a praiseworthy instinct to think so and so we'll take a very uh, an easy example someone like Pol Pot or Mao Zedong or or Hitler it's easy to think of someone like that suffering for their sins and and to think uh, they had it coming to them but even in a clear-cut case like that even in the case of someone who has clearly done terrible things maliciously, if we explore a little bit what it is that we're imagining when we imagine them suffering forever in hell, I think we'll find that it is very difficult to reconcile that with our claim that God is just and that God is good. For example, if if we were to say Hitler has done terrible things, inflicted terrible harms and sufferings on innocent people, he does not deserve to be in the presence of God until he has paid the last penny until he has repented of all the harm he has done, however long that takes. That's an understandable position. But what if we say, once Hitler died, he went to hell and is suffering and will go on suffering, not for the sake of repentance, not for the sake of learning his lesson, but just for the sake of that suffering itself, and there is no hope for him anymore. What really are we hoping for when we imagine that? What really are we believing in? What really is is the, the, the basis for our our embrace of that image. It's not doing him any good. He's not hes not changing his heart. He's not experiencing a change of heart or a conversion. And so to say that God is just and God is compassionate, but also that God consigns any of his children to pure, pointless suffering. That's really what it is. It's a pointless suffering. It's not even a it's not a punishment that teaches someone a lesson. It's just punishment for the sake of retribution. That, I think, is, is, is irreconcilable with anything that we mean when we call God good, when we call God just. Uh, such, a, 
such a vision of hell doesn't bring about any increase of justice or compassion in the life of the person punished. And so what, what is it that we're hoping for? We're, we're really just hoping for pure revenge. And that is not consistent with what Christians say about God. And one of the things that got me thinking about this even more deeply was an article by David Bentley Hart on creation ex nihilo. And he made the point that how creation turns out is not just how it happens to turn out, but it ends up being the revelation of the moral character of God. For if God is the creator of all from the beginning without any interference and nothing else impinging upon God, then however it turns out at the end is however it was intended from the beginning. So a, a hell of eternal pointless retribution would not be something that just happened to arise in God's creation. It would be a feature of the creation planned from the beginning. And that then would tell us something about the very character of God. And when Dr. Hart, I think, did such a good job of putting that forward, it, it kind of put a sharper point on the stakes that are in play when we're talking about the goodness of God in relation to how God pursues judgment. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's a very good point, because I think when some Christians today strive to defend what might be called the traditional view, or to use Bentley Hart's word, the infernalist view, in other words, when Christians today try to defend the idea of an eternal conscious torment as, as one possible outcome of human life, increasingly, they will do so in terms that suggest God really is is stuck, that God is sort of God had no choice given the given human nature, given human freedom, uh, given the nature of of existence. Really, God had to accept the possibility that some people would would suffer eternally. So the the implicitly what they're saying is it's not that God wants people to suffer eternally. Um, it's just it had to be so because of all these other factors. So that defense of hell, that attempt to to justify the traditional infernalist view of hell, reveals quite a lot. It reveals that many Christians understand that the, the the traditional view is hard to square with God's goodness. But it also shows, it also manifests a peculiar belief that God sort of ended up painting himself into a corner through the other features of the world by creating human freedom. God suddenly discovers, oh no, now I have to now I have to allow people to suffer eternally. That that's that's kind of the image that's suggested by those defenses. I agree. Um, David Bentley Hart's writing on this um, on this topic is is very is very poignant and and uh, and challenging and very interesting and I think in many ways convincing. And I, I think indeed it is the case that if we are going to affirm eternal conscious torment as a, a feature of post-mortem existence, we can't suggest that God somehow inadvertently ended up with that outcome. We really have to, we would really have to find a way to, to justify that in terms of God's will and God's plan for the, for the world. Dr. Alaria Ramelli, I think, has done a good job of helping us to see how in these early centuries of the church, the greatest thinkers weren't just theologians and biblical scholars, they were also philosophers, that there was not really a separation for somebody like Gregory of Nyssa or Origen between theology and philosophy. So there was a strong philosophical tradition already in that world, and so they had to answer philosophical concerns and questions about the nature of God's goodness. So 
philosophical consistency was important to them as well as theological consistency and biblical consistency and so they put all that together in a way that I don't that I don't think is is as present in a lot of modern theology because now it seems philosophy and theology have become two different things and they've become divorced from each other what I like about what David Bentley Hart does is I think he brings the best of philosophy and the best of theology together to make a coherent system. And he claims, he's very open about the idea that this is a part of the ancient tradition of the church that's already been explicated very well by somebody like Gregory of Nyssa. It's, he's not the first one to see these things. He's just calling us in a way back to a stronger understanding of the philosophical implications of our theological declarations. That's right. Yeah. And, and it, in fact, it's, uh, we sometimes hear that uttered as a reproach against universalist versions of Christianity. Nowadays, we'll hear people say, in good faith, they'll say, well, you know, it's all very well what you're saying. It's all very well to argue that God's goodness and justice are not compatible with eternal conscious torment. But isn't that just a philosophical argument? Aren't you, aren't you arguing for an eschatology that's purely the result of philosophical reasoning. It's not really theological. It's not really scriptural. That's that's a reproach that we sometimes hear. But that's wrong for a couple of reasons. It's, it's wrong, first of all, because theology can't simply ignore philosophy or vice versa. As Christians, as you say, these are these are two different modes of inquiring into the same into the same life, into the same world. And so we can't see these as being opposed to each other. But it's also the case that as sophisticated a philosopher as, as Origen or as Gregory of Nyssa, they were also deeply rooted in the scriptures. They were there, there was no uh, there was no more scripturally minded father of the church than Origen. Um, and um, and so the idea that they these are two uh, sort of two different hats that one wears when inquiring into what God is like and what the world is like, that's not that's not really the way the earliest Christians saw it and it's not the way Christians need to see it today. So philosophy and theology can collaborate and, and must collaborate in order to in order to resolve some of these questions. Um, and I, I think we'll find that a philosophical, uh, philosophically sensitive exploration of what it means for God to be good is one that is also deeply consistent with the the uh, the way Scripture reveals God. Well, one of the ways that I've heard this argued from people that are defending uh, what Dr. Hart calls the infernalist view is that, well, yeah, it might not make sense to us, but God's ways are higher than our ways. And God is good, so whatever God does is good. So if God decides to do it, then it's good because God decides to do it. And that's kind of the way that I hear that talked about. Right. So there's a there, there are a couple of... Um major problems with that point of view. One is that it's not characteristic, uh, I would say, of the Christian understanding of God or of the scriptures taken as a whole. So for example, in the in the Catholic tradition, both, both Roman Catholic and, and Eastern Catholic, there is, as I see it, there's much less of a sense that something is good because God declares it to be good. The more consistent Catholic understanding of God's goodness is that it is not God's arbitrary will that makes something good, but that God wills and chooses uh, and offers that which is that which is good in itself. Um, so that's that's one that's one concern I would have with that perspective. It's, it's to say, it's it's a it's an insufficiently 
broad and insufficiently generous notion of the Christian tradition itself. But it's also the case, and this is the point that Bentley Hart makes, I think, so well, that if eternal conscious torment can be described as good and just, then those words have no meaning anymore. Then it really doesn't mean anything when we say God is good. The, The idea of tormenting someone without any possibility of redemption or deliverance for all eternity is so incompatible with any kind of justice and so compatible incompatible with any kind of paternal love that those words no longer have any meaning. We might as well stop using any language to describe God. And that's not an option available to Christians. We do believe that something real is meant when we describe God as good and just and, and faithful and true. So uh, George MacDonald, uh, the, the, the great Scottish novelist and, and preacher who is, who is such an important figure in, in, uh, in Christian universalism, he, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but a, a powerful remark from George MacDonald is that I would, I would find it abhorrent to attribute to God anything I would find impossible to attribute to a good father. If I can't imagine describing a good father as doing X, Y, or Z, then we can't say that God does those things. And we would never, in, we would never under any circumstances, say that a good father uh, arbitrarily punishes his children with suffering that will never end. That's just, it's, it's, it's inconsistent to the point of absurdity. So uh, we can't make that absurdity disappear simply by substituting the word God for a good father. Uh, uh, if a good father would not do those things, how much less would God do those things? Um, so we, we can't, Christians must not and cannot hide behind the idea that if God does something, it's good. That makes nonsense of, of human language. Well, the way I've tended to see this is that what happened is in Western Christianity after the Middle Ages, because of some things that happened around the Fifth General Council, uh, primarily, I think, that the that the notion of a hell of eternal conscious torment became cemented fairly strongly in the Western tradition. So it wasn't really possible or even safe to question that. So people did the best they could with it, and they tried to make it as tolerable as they possibly could in in different ways. And I think that continues today. People that want to hold on to that tradition try to find ways of making it less severe. But you write in your article, but even if we take away the ghastliest and most blasphemous component of the conventional Western view, namely the positing of deliberately created torments, we're still left with the scandal of an eternity of despair that can never do anyone any good, even if that despair is framed, as it usually is nowadays, as entirely self-inflicted. Could you say a little more about that? Sure, yeah. So when we when we look at the Christian writings of the 12th and 13th centuries, we, we find, you know, this extraordinary works like Dante's Divine Comedy or the Thomas Aquinas's uh, Summa Theologica. Two very different works, but both agree that there is a hell. Both agree that, that the hell is eternal, that it is an eternity of suffering. Dante embellishes his vision of hell with all these creative and and interesting tailor-made torments for each, for each kind of suffering, for each kind of offense. Uh, so Dante's vision is not is not really informed by Christian revelation. It's it's a it's a work of fiction. It's a work of literature, um, but it's one that entered 
into Christian consciousness, into the Christian imagination. With the passage of time, it became more and more obvious that, that Christians cannot really believe that God, for example, deliberately buries someone in, in, in lava up to their chins or, you know, whatever the, whatever the case may be. Take whatever, whatever torment you want from, from Dante's writing. Christians today increasingly recognize we can't imagine God as a kind of Tartarus, uh, divine, devising tortures tailor-made for this or that sin. Um, and so very often nowadays, Christians will try to retain the eternity of hell, will try to retain the idea of hell as, a, as an alienation from God, but will use in C.S. Lewis's imagery, the, the, the image of a door locked on the inside. People will say, okay, very well, God doesn't really design tortures to make people suffer for eternity. We can't say that. But we can say, we're more comfortable saying, people themselves choose to be alienated from God for all eternity. So it's really people who choose to reject God and God respects our freedom. That's a very, very common way to present that image or to a very common way nowadays for Christians to describe hell. It's a door locked on the inside. People choose to reject God and God respects our freedom. But even if we, we remove from the picture all of Dante's embellishments, we still have to ask the question, in what way is God's love and justice fulfilled by a person suffering for all eternity, unless that suffering is leading them to a change of heart. And that's what I mean by non-medicinal, a suffering that is, that's not purifying, but that is purely an ongoing alienation from God. The, the problem with the image of a door locked on the inside is it implies that the person is in a position to unlock it. If we, if we were to imagine an image of hell where a person is in a position to change their condition, in other words, a person can reach out and unlock that door. A person is able to be purified. A person is able to repent even after death. Then that's an image that we would have no uh, Christians, I don't think, would have any problem with. It's an image that we find in Origen. It's an image that we find in Gregory. We find it in um, uh, Isaac of Nineveh. We find it in, in many other fathers of the church who were sympathetic to universalism. In other words, hell not as eternal torment, but as something like what Roman Catholics call purgatory, a time of purification. That is a, a defensible image of hell precisely because there is a hope even in the midst of that suffering, a hope that someone can reach out and unlock the door if they have a change of heart. If a person cannot unlock that door, then we're not really shielding God from the, from the accusation that, that God is being unjust, that God is punishing someone for no good reason. And so the, the, the point I was making in that, that paragraph you cited is that we may think Christians, we Christians may think that we are defending a more realistic or a more rational notion of hell if we take away all the tortures and just make it a matter of ratifying a human being's decisions. But unless we believe that people are capable of a change of heart after death, then we're still stuck with the problem that God is causing or allowing people to suffer forever with no hope. Another problem I think that, that this, well, I usually think of it as the free will defense of hell runs into, is it depends on something I've come to understand as a libertarian view of free will, in which people are actually able to do potentially anything. And I think David Bentley Hart does a good job of pointing out some of the problems of this libertarian free will and that a will that is acting under the influence of insanity or bad information 
is not really truly free. The only free will is one that is fully informed and in its right mind and is aware of the nature of its own creation and the goodness and the destiny for which it's created. And so I think that there is a problem then. To me, that, that's a better way of thinking about what a free will is than the the standard kind of libertarian view of free will that I hear talked about a lot. Yeah, exactly. I, I, if If we imagine the human will as sort of a person standing in a bare hallway faced with four or five doors and vol- voluntaristically or arbitrarily just choosing one of those doors, um, then if that is what re- if that's if that's really what human freedom looks like, then possibly we could defend the image of someone choosing door number three, finding that 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 door leads them to be separated from God, but that's the choice they've freely made, and so that's the choice they have to live with. If that's what human freedom looks like, maybe conceivably we could we could defend that idea of of a, of a, of a post mortem alienation from God. But that's not what human freedom looks like. Human freedom looks like choosing the good, the true, and the beautiful because that's what we're drawn to, even if we do so mistakenly, even if we choose something that's actually not good, not true, and not beautiful under the illusion that it is good or true or beautiful. We make we make mistaken decisions all the time, fair enough. But it is it is even mistaken, even even wayward decisions are a quest for what is good and true and beautiful. That's what we're made for. That's what that's the nature of human the, the, the human heart. And so if human freedom is a, a sometimes praiseworthy, sometimes wayward pursuit of what is good and true and beautiful, then we can't imagine our decisions as as purely arbitrary selections of a door in a bare hallway. The idea that a person would eternally persist in choosing that which is contrary to the good and the true and the beautiful is is a is pretty difficult to sustain. When we look at our own lives, when we look at the lives even of people who have lived through great conversions, we see a a gradual, perhaps painful, but a steady move towards towards life, towards goodness, towards truth and, and beauty. And so the the image of the image of hell as as a purification with a hope of deliverance is much more consistent with that vision of freedom than the idea that we choose door number three and we're stuck in that room uh, forever. Another way that people have tried to ameliorate the doctrine of hell is to sort of posit it as a um, a theoretical possibility that will never actually exist for anyone. You reflect on that a bit in your article. I wonder if you could tell us about this. Yeah, so... I, I see this. Um, one of the most famous examples of this is Hans Urs von Balthasar, the, the the great Catholic theologian of the 20th century. He famously argued that it was legitimate, that it was possible to hope that all people be saved, without affirming as a as an absolute certainty that all people will be saved. In other words, von Balthasar was trying to maintain two things at once. On the one hand, the seeming necessity of believing in an eternal hell as a possibility, and on the other hand the conviction that God's goodness and justice are difficult to square with eternal conscious torment. So von Balthasar's way of reconciling this was to say, hell is a possibility, but we can hope that that hell will always be empty. It's it's a very, I think, a praiseworthy effort to to keep 
a number of different aspects of the Christian tradition, particularly of the Catholic tradition, to keep those to keep both of those pieces in play. And with all due respect to to the great mind and heart that von Balthasar was, I think the hope that all people will be saved, the hope for an eternally empty hell, in a way shows exactly what the problem is. The problem is that it's difficult for Christians to live with the idea of eternal conscious torment. If we if we really stop to think about what it means to posit an eternal conscious torment as a possible outcome for even some human beings, then we find that it's very difficult to maintain that view. It's very difficult to live with that view and at the same time to say that God is good and just. So I think the the point made by von Balthasar and many others, this this hope that all people will be saved, reveals in some ways the problem that we're dealing with. It reveals that it's difficult for for Christians to uh, to continue to affirm uh, a hell of eternal conscious torment. I know for a long time, essentially for for much of my life as a Catholic, un, until I began to consider the possibility of universal salvation. The only view that I found I could live with was von Balthasar's view. The, the, I could only envision myself as a Christian. I could only live with, with Christian conviction if I also hoped that at somehow the possibility of hell would always remain a purely theoretical possibility, that no one would actually end up in that situation, and therefore we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't have to face this uh, uh, this dilemma that we've been that we've been talking about. So I, I have a great deal of sympathy, in some ways, for von Balthasar's view, but I think it reveals that 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 hope itself reveals just what a problem eternal conscious torment is as a doctrine. Another way that people have tried to make this view more palatable, and we've talked about this a little bit, is C.S. Lewis' idea that all of the doors of hell are locked from the inside, and N.T. Wright has suggested in, in his writings that maybe what happens behind that locked door is that the more we say no, the more degraded we become. And finally, we become so degraded that we become somehow something that was formerly human. And then some people say, well, maybe if we say no to the nth millionth time, then finally, there's nothing left to say no anymore. So that that the way that it ends is not that that God annihilates anybody, it's that they sort of annihilate themselves by just continually saying no till in fact there's nothing left. So it's it's an intriguing image and, and one that I don't know that there's any foundation for such a view in the scriptures. I think that if there is a if there's a point of view that, that could be criticized as as being alien to what the the little that the scriptures tell us about uh, life after death. Uh, I don't see in the scriptures such an image. I would also object that the idea of, of kind of an, it's, it's like an asymptote in, in mathematics where one line approaches another uh, more and more closely, but never actually reaches it. The idea of a sort of asymptotic non-existence that by our repeated uh, rejections of God, we become less and less human. I don't know that that's consistent either with what with our experience of what it means to choose, what it means to seek. Our experience as human beings of seeking um, and of choosing and of conversion and of falling back, it, it, it's not of it's not of something irreparable. It's it's uh, our experience as uh, as human beings is sometimes of being far gone. But even in the midst of our despair, even in the midst of our our sadness or in the midst of our malice, the Holy Spirit can 
reach us and transform us. If N.T. Wright's vision, and, and I'm, I don't, I'm not criticizing N.T. Wright here. I don't know his thought well enough. But if, if it sounds like an image where a person is inaccessible to the grace of God, inaccessible to the grace of the Holy Spirit, and the idea that that some people are are not reachable by the grace of God, that is not. That's certainly not a, a, a Catholic notion. Um, I think. Perhaps there is something like that in Calvinism, uh, where some people simply are are not reachable. But there's no room in in the in the Catholic and Orthodox traditions, uh, at any rate, for for human beings who are not reachable by grace. Um, and so, if the only way, if the doctrine of hell forces us to arrive at a conclusion where some people are simply not reachable by grace, I think the price is the game isn't worth the candle. Right? We we've ended up compromising something far more fundamental about the about Christian hope which is the belief that God loves all human beings and that that uh, Christ died for all if we say that there are some people for whom the grace of God cannot possibly be operative in their life I I, I, I don't see that as a as an option for for historic Orthodox Christianity one of the things that's interesting is to find out that some of the early church thinkers and leaders that had the idea of a universal restoration saw in the judgment language of the New Testament in the original Greek some room for the idea that what might be being talked about here is a kind of judgmental purgation or refinement, and that that's what God's eternal judgments are about. They are aeonian colossus in the Greek, which implies a reformatory process, which is age-enduring. And they were able to see Aeonios and Colossus as terms that ultimately could lead to a, an ultimate restoration. And so that was how they thought about it. And I think that the Eastern Church, at least much more than the Western Church, was able to remember that early discussion about these things. Well, so what's interesting is that Catholics and Orthodox alike, we pray for the dead. That's part of our, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty basic part of our practice as, as Catholics and Orthodox. And that practice pre-existed any formal doctrinal explanation of why we pray for the dead. But it was, it was so fundamental in the way Christians lived in the first centuries that Fathers of the Church, as different as Augustine in the West and John Chrysostom in the East, they both argued that since this is what we do, since we do pray for the dead, we have to have some notion of what happens after death that makes sense of this custom or that makes sense of this conviction. It's not just a custom. It was a conviction that it is a it is a, an honorable and a meaningful and a beautiful thing to pray for the dead. So in the, in the Roman tradition, this became the doctrine of purgatory, a fairly, fairly developed idea that many people, perhaps most people, after death are not yet ready to be in the presence of God and therefore experience a time of purification, and that they are helped by the prayers of the church and they're helped by the prayers of the, of the saints. In the East, the notion, the word purgatory is not used. The, the, the doctrine is not nearly as fully developed, um, deliberately so. The, the, the orthodox instinct is often to, to keep things simple, to not try and put words or put names to things that, that we can't be certain about. But, but ultimately, the conviction is the same, that after death, hope is not lost, that after death, it is possible for people to continue improving 
and that the prayers of the church in heaven and the prayers of the church on earth help people in that process. And so the, the idea of, of hell as being really essentially what the Roman church means by purgatory and what the, the Eastern churches mean when they pray for the dead, that's, that's a, it's, it's, a, it's an ancient belief, but it's also a deeply seated belief, a belief that death is not the last word, that it is not the moment at which life ceases to evolve and change. And so I, I see a great affinity there between a, a conviction of the Catholic and Orthodox churches and this view that, that the, the sufferings spoken of by our Lord in the Gospels are not ret- eternal and retributive but are refining and of of perhaps lengthy but but limited duration. Now, I I grew up in the southern central part of the United States in Texas in the Bible Belt, and so even though I didn't really go to church when I was growing up, I heard a lot about it and I visited some. But when I did go, there was never any talk about any chance to change anything after you died. That that death was Death was the end point, and wherever you were spiritually was where you would be eternally when you died. And if you were a Christian in good standing, then you would go to heaven, and anything less than that, you would go to hell for all of eternity. So in in Protestant churches, and that those are the only ones that I've really experienced, there was never any idea that you would pray for the dead. There was no idea about that at all. Now, there are some passages in the New Testament which seem to reflect Jesus going to the dead, but that tradition, even though there is some scriptural support for it, never was part of what the Protestant reformers seemed to think about. So that's interesting to me that you're saying that it was a part of the worship life of the church before anything became formalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons, I mean, so much of the Reformation was an earnest desire to recover a focus on Christ, right? When we look at the, the, the Reformation as a moment in the life of the Western Church, um, what we see in Martin Luther, for example, is his experience of being of feeling burdened, uh, of feeling scrupulous, and then being freed by experiencing freedom when he put his trust in Christ. And, and so I think the Reformation as a moment in the life of the Western Church, when, when the faithful insisted on a return to Christ, on a return to the scriptures, that vital and important moment in the life of the Western Church also had some collateral damage, sometimes quite serious collateral damage. Um, and so, for example, in its, in its understandable zeal to, to allow the individual Christian to relate to Christ, uh, the Reformation may have, may have lost some sight of the ministerial priesthood, for example, and, and, and the, the, the possibility of, of finding grace and goodness in the ministerial priesthood. It's, it's an understandable move, but one that, that perhaps was, was quite costly. And I wonder if this might not be such a, uh, also such an example. In, its, in, in the Reformation's very understandable zeal to, to free the faithful from the, the, the burden of indulgences and the notion of, of, of paying for deliverance, paying for, uh, for shortening your stay in purgatory, all of the things that had become such a burden for the faithful. In its understandable zeal to, to free the faithful of that, I wonder if, if the, what underlay that, the, the, the conviction, the ancient conviction that it is the church's responsibility and hope to pray for the dead, that may also that may also have been lost, and so and so I think 
as as time goes on, you know, the, the Lutherans and Catholics a few years ago uh, signed an agreement that their their understanding of grace was 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 actually quite similar. When with the passage of time, with the acknowledgement that there were many things that needed reform possible for these churches to to affirm a common understanding of grace. Um, and so I wonder if perhaps this is also something where Christians generally can recover the belief that death does not end our obligation and our opportunity to pray for each other, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it continues to be part of the mission of the church to sustain those who are continuing their pilgrimage uh, even after death. Now, one of the things that you're suggesting here is that we're still having a conversation about these things among the Christian family. And sometimes it's hard to imagine that things could be different than the way that they are. But these theological traditions and ideas are maybe in a little more flux than we might realize, than the average person might realize, that there's a lot of discussion that's continuing to go on, a lot of reflection now. I see in my own circles people becoming much more aware of Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, much more aware of the different ways, the nuances of theology that exists within the Catholic tradition, and then within the Catholic tradition, an ability to listen and hear maybe from dissenting voices in a way that's a little more productive now. So we could potentially be in a place where we're able to continue to have this discussion. And moving forward, you know, maybe a hundred years from now, there might be even some significant movement on the way people think about these things. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that, for example, I, I don't know that the, the Roman Catholic Church is able, would be able tomorrow to say, we are convinced every human being will be saved. I think that that would be not, when I say it, I don't think it's possible for them to, to, to make that statement. I don't mean politically. I don't mean, you know, they, Roman Catholics secretly believe it, but they just can't say it. I don't think the church, it's the church's place to, to state its confidence in precisely those words. What I, what I do see as a possible area for, for evolution is to, to move away from certain language that historically showed a belief in eternal conscious torment. So, for example, in the Roman Catholic tradition, there's the, the phrase mortal sin, the idea that there are sins, there are actions that instantaneously cause one to be alienated from God in such a way that if you die in that state, then you will, you will go to hell. Uh, so that's what, that's what the Roman tradition means by mortal sin. That language is still part of catechesis of, of religious education in the Roman church, but it's, I see it as being less and less part of the, uh, let's say the, the papal teaching. And that's not only true of Pope Francis. It was true even, it's been true over my, many of the, the, the last few decades. The idea of mortal sin as a way of approaching human action seems to be fading. And I think that's a good thing because, because it's, uh, the idea that we can instantaneously be, uh, we can instantaneously merit hell by by a single action, and that this could happen regularly throughout a person's week, throughout a person's life. That that's uh, I think difficult to, to sustain. So what I do see as a possibility is that the Roman Church, to, to speak just of the the Roman Catholic Church, and and I'm an Eastern Catholic, so I'm I'm part of the the family of Catholic churches. I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I'm a, a member of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. So 
our church is in communion with the Pope, but we practice Orthodox liturgy and we we um, we refer to Orthodox theological traditions. So I speak as a Catholic. I think the Catholic Church could lean more and more into its own historic language about the mercy of God, about the love of God, about the the possibility of purification after death, and could lean less and less on categories that that really are not essential to its life and to its fate. So, for example, the category of mortal sin, or or the um, um, the the notion of a fixity of the will at death, the notion that at death that's the the, the last word. Uh, we don't actually believe that. Um, in practice, because we do pray for the dead, and so why why do we why do we insist that uh, um, there's an exception for people who who are damned? You know this this image of people who have chosen damnation and and can never ever uh, revise that decision again. So what what I what I do see as a possibility for the Catholic Church is to to lean more and more on on its historic belief in the goodness of God and the possibility of conversion. And to lean less and less on on these other terms, this other language, that uh, that ultimately doesn't have the same doesn't have the same roots. And with that, with that openness to hell, not as eternal conscious torment, but as purification, then there's room for dialogue with churches that are going through their own evolution, churches uh, of other traditions that may be rediscovering or affirming or that have always affirmed the possibility of, of universal salvation. One of the final questions that you reflect on in your article is this question. Doesn't the hope that all shall be saved remove the incentive for holiness? Could you say something about that? Yeah, it's it's a very common objection to as soon as one proposes the possibility that all people are may be saved, very often Christians in very earnestly in good faith will say, but if that's the case, why will people, why would people bother? Why do people bother trying to be holy? It's not a, it's not a new concern, even as great a soul as origin uh, seems to have had a similar concern. He, he, uh, it seems he was hesitant to talk openly about his hope for eternal salvation, for universal salvation, because he feared that it would lead to a, a to laxity or to a loss of zeal. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's, the 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 highest point in in uh, in origin's work is when when he uh, gives utterance to that fear so it, it's it's a common and a long standing concern but i can't help maybe naively but i can't help but seeing it as a as a rather sad kind of fear it's a bit like saying of a child how can we possibly expect them to live good lives if they are if they don't believe in santa claus or if they no longer believe in the boogeyman you know, we, we don't say that about children. We we are confident that that a child grows into a flourishing adult precisely by choosing the good for the sake of the good. We don't persist in subjecting them to illusions in the hopes that it will secure some kind of behavior, that some sort of desirable behavior. And to me, it's it's it feels similar to argue of of humanity as a whole or of Christians in general to say. How can we hope? How can we trust that people will seek holiness unless they're afraid of hell? Um, but surely people are better than that. If if not, if a person's only reason for avoiding 
seriously wayward or sinful behavior, if their only reason is fear of hell, then that in itself is not something we would see as ideal. If a person were to say, I would cheat my, you know, I would, I would defraud my elderly neighbor in a heartbeat if it weren't for the fear of hell, we wouldn't say great. You know, that's, that's the outcome we're looking for. You're, you're living your best life. We wouldn't say that. We'd say, I'm glad you're not defrauding your elderly neighbor, but your reasons for, for living that way, there's room for improvement. So in the same way, we, we, perhaps there would be some, some laxity if the churches began openly to, to express their hope in universal salvation. But in the Gospels, uh, we see Jesus interacting with individuals, caring for them as individuals, calling them to a, a holier life as individuals. Um, and the church can can and ought to live the same way, calling people to their best lives, uh, not through fear, but through through confidence and through the desire to to live according to uh, according to the call of God. Now, one of the things that people get concerned about when you use the term Christian universalism is that term universalism it sounds a little bit like pluralism, but you're not talking about a Christian pluralism. You're talking about a universalism in which all paths to ultimate reconciliation with God must converge in Christ. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important distinction because the very same word, universalism, is used for two very different, at least two very different doctrinal positions. Uh, so as you say, one of them is the view that all paths are equally salvific, let's say. But that's not what's meant by a hope for the salvation of all, a hope that all people be saved. If anyone is saved, our our conviction as Christians is that if anyone is saved, it is by the by the life and death and resurrection of Christ. It is by the work of Christ in the world. It's by the action of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say that there is no hope for salvation in someone who is part of a different religion or someone who has never heard the gospel preached. But we could put it this way. If a, if a if a Christian is saved, they are saved by Christ. If a Buddhist is saved, they are saved by Christ. If a Muslim is saved, they are saved by Christ. So it's not a universalism that turns the life and death and resurrection of Christ into an afterthought. It's a universalism that believes God's love is for all. God's love is encompasses every single being. And that the, the life and death and resurrection of Christ offer the possibility of salvation to every human being. So Christ remains the Savior. What expands or what becomes broader is not our convictions about the importance of Jesus. Uh, what what becomes broader is our conviction about who can possibly be saved and and uh, and and what it would mean to be saved. Now, as I listen to you talk, and I've I've talked with a number of people about this subject, you seem to me to be able to discuss this in a very informed and sophisticated way within your seated in within your particular Christian tradition, the Eastern Catholic tradition. So how did you first come across the arguments for universal reconciliation and how did it finally sort of win over you in your continuing theological development? So I think for the longest time, for for a long time as a as a Christian, as a Catholic, I just I was aware of a of a tension or of a of a cognitive dissonance, and I simply accepted it as as something I didn't understand yet. Which was, in other words, I I believed 
you know, to the best of my understanding, my church teaches that eternal conscious torment is a possible outcome for at least some people. I'm not sure how how to square that with everything else I believe, but but maybe it'll make sense eventually. Um, with time, I was uneasy enough with that view that I I rested in, as I mentioned earlier, von Balthasar's uh, hope that eternal conscious torment as a destiny for some is a possibility, but I'll hope that it remains just a theoretical possibility. But for me, it was it was difficult to to rest in that permanently because implicit in that position is the belief: if even one soul is eternally lost, I will find that dif- I would find that difficult to understand. I would find that difficult to square with everything else we say about God and about Christ. And so, at that point, my position was to say: I continue to be unable to to square eternal conscious torment with the rest of what we believe as Christians, but some kind of resolution is going to be necessary because um, I can't see my way to affirming the doctrine of eternal conscious torment in light of everything else we believe. So there was a, there was kind of a, um, an awareness that some sort of resolution was necessary. And then when I, when I found, when I learned that there was a longstanding tradition, when I learned that there were, there was a precedent in the fathers of the church to, to hope for the salvation of all. In fact, to not just to hope for the salvation of all, but the absence of a belief in an eternal hell. Once I found that there was a precedent for that, uh, and once I found as well uh, analogies for that or analogous views among certain Catholic thinkers, for example, um, there's, a, there's something like that hope for universal salvation in Julian of Norwich. We see Catherine of Siena, a, a beloved Catholic saint, saying that if she could, she would abolish hell. You know that, that which is not the same as a as a belief in universal salvation, but it shows that same uneasiness. So, in other words, when the more I became aware that there were precedents in Christian history for the, this larger hope, then that gave me, uh, I think, the the the, the hope uh, or the confidence that there was room for this belief within within my view as a within my beliefs as a as a Catholic. Um, reading reading David Bentley Hart's book that all shall be saved was certainly a helpful confirmation. I think that the vigor with which uh, Bentley Hart makes the argument was uh, was was quite valuable in clarifying my thoughts. But when I when I picked up his book, I was already sympathetic, uh, strongly sympathetic to the to the conclusions that he came to there. Um, and in in the catechism of, uh, in other words, in the the book, in the, the the collection or the statement of doctrinal positions of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. It's a it's a book called Christ Our Pascha. It's a it's a catechism of our our church. The references to post mortem punishment are very very modest. It it's limited to just a couple of paragraphs, and doesn't say anything about eternal torment. It simply it it speaks of of a punishment for the wicked, and it quotes only a couple of fathers: Maximus the Confessor and Origen of Alexandria, two fathers of the church, who are uh, in the case of Origen. It's it's uh, generally admitted that he was a universalist, and Maximus the Confessor is, is often considered one. So I, I saw in the doctrinal statement uh, of my my church as well a uh, not a clear cut statement. We believe one hundred percent that all people will be saved, but a willingness to to embrace that as a possible position. And so that's 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 a bit of the, the evolution of my uh, my own position on the subject. 
So you teach in the Department of Theological Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, and I'm wondering what the response of your students is to find out that this hope for universal restoration existed in the early tradition of the church and that there were some early church fathers and thinkers that had very confident assertions of this viewpoint. How, how, does, how do your students react to this? It's, it's a very interesting question because there's a, a wide variety of reactions. And, and uh, in general, I've seen, I'll, I'll mention maybe three or four of the major reactions I've seen. I've seen students who are not themselves Christian and, and who are perhaps, perhaps they were at one point or they grew up in a Christian family, but they're not, they're not Christian now. And in some cases, one of their reasons for distancing themselves from the church or from Christianity is is finding that belief in hell for them was was an absurdity or a scandal. And so for them, learning that there is room for uh, hope in universal salvation within Christianity, I wouldn't say it convinces them, but it, it, it uh, for them it's an, an interesting discovery. And, and perhaps uh, in some cases it gives them pause or, or leads them to, to uh, investigate the question again. So that's one, one reaction I've seen. Another reaction, and one that, that I find really, uh, uh, really particularly interesting, are students who are not Christian, but who are interested or curious inquirers. They're, they're interested in learning more about religions generally. Um, and I've seen among uh, several students uh, a sympathetic disposition towards Christianity, which was perplexed by the doctrine of hell. And so with this favorable disposition or with this sympathetic disposition, when they learn that there are Christians who, with you know, with profound theological convictions, who are believers in universal salvation, they find that a hopeful discovery for them. It it opens the possibility that they continue to they can continue to explore Christianity, and that there is room to to hold on to these reservations that they have, um, and to and to continue to to um, to explore Christianity. And then a third reaction, I would say, are from students who are Christians um, and perhaps who have grown up with or embraced a, uh, a more traditional view of, of hell and an infernalist view. And among those students, I've seen quite a few reactions, some who will say, this does not seem to be what our church teaches, you know, whatever their whatever Christian church they may be part of. Many of them will say, this is this was not my understanding. They, they, they see belief in hell as a necessary part of Christianity. And I understand why that's the case. Many churches have made it quite central in their preaching and teaching. Um, and so what I see in, in the lives of those students is that seriously committed Christians who believe that they, they must affirm hell for one reason or another. And so for them, it's a, it, it raises a question mark. It's part of their, their ongoing journey. And then, and then there are Christian students who, uh, for whom it's a hopeful discovery. They're happy to learn that that maybe an, uh, an intuition they had about universal salvation does have some resonances in history. So it's a very wide range of reactions, some surprised, some perplexed, some concerned, some hopeful. Um, and, and in that, it's kind of a snapshot of, of the, the lives of our churches uh, in general. Well, what I'd like to end up with is some reflections on the pastoral implications of this. And this is what I ran into in pastoral ministry is that 
a lot of people suffered from what I'll call salvation anxiety. They were trying to be a Christian, but the longer they were Christian, sort of the more they realized that there were certain parts of their personality or their development that never seemed to really come into line the way they wanted it to, or they maybe didn't feel as passionate about their faith as they once did, or they begin to worry about things, or they suffer tragedies, and uh, they wonder how God could allow these things to happen. And sort of all these questions kind of build up. It almost becomes like a sort of a spiritual logjam. And behind all these questions are unresolved fears about the character of God's goodness and what God's judgment is going to be like. And so they become more and more fearful as they get older of actually facing the God who they who they think, well, there's a chance that, that this God might reject me forever. Anyway, so there there are lots of real implications to all of this. So maybe people don't vocalize these things, but they, they kind of run. It's sort of a, a deep-seated fear that kind of runs in the background. And I wonder if you could just talk about some of the pastoral implications of all of this. Yeah. So if 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 it is if there is a God, I, I believe there is. I'm, I'm not raising a question about that. But if let's speak sort of hypothetically for a moment. If there is a God, and that God is good and loving, and has a has a a wish for all people to enter into communion with with himself. That's one of the most important things we could know about the world and about life, because it. It changes everything about the the purpose of human existence, the source of human existence, how to make sense of suffering. If there is a loving creator, that transforms most aspects of life. And so the Christian message uh, about who God is, the Christian message that God has come in, entered into the world in the person of Christ and has sanctified this world through his life and death and resurrection, that too is vitally important. If at the same time we say that God causes some of his rational creatures to exist eternally in a state of conscious suffering that has no hope of conversion or redemption, then it's not clear what we mean by describing God as good or just, because that's not a good or a just thing to do. It's not something we would describe as good or just. Um, And so the pastoral implication of teaching that there is an eternal a hell of eternal conscious torment. One of the major pastoral implications is that we take away the foundation for the hope that is central to the Christian message, because we we seem to be making nonsense of the claim that God is good and that Christ is, has come for our salvation. So that's one that's one pastoral implication is that if our message is if the Christian message is to be defensible and coherent. Um, it has to be consistent with itself. And the doctrine of hell, as I see it, is not consistent. The infernalist doctrine of hell is not consistent with other more important Christian claims. So that's one pastoral implication. Another one is that if in every interaction I have with someone as a Christian, if I am potentially leading them one step closer to damnation or one step further away, then every interaction I have has to be governed by this 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 sort of binary sense that I'm either contributing to their damnation or I'm contributing to their salvation. And in practice, what that can mean is a certain loss of humanity. It means instead of listening to someone, instead of saying, what can I say and do today that will help them to have a little bit more hope today? What can I say and do today that will help them to have, to have a 
to to make a little bit of progress. That kind of question is more difficult to sustain. The idea of of interacting with someone so as to contribute a little bit to their to their growth and flourishing, that's not encouraged as I see it by belief in hell. Uh, belief in hell tends to lead people to feel I have one chance to preach the gospel in its in its unvarnished fullness to this person. Everything I say has to push them away from hell. It can lead to some inhuman interactions where I I only see someone as either a sinner or not a sinner, as either damned or saved. Um, and so a, a second major pastoral implication of universal salvation um, is that it it frees me to 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 trust. God loves this person. God is leading this person towards life. What can I say and do today that will be part of that move towards life? Even if it's not the last word on the subject, even if I'm not warning them against the fires of hell, uh, what can I do and say that will encourage them uh, and give them strength and hope and, and comfort in, in truth and goodness and beauty? So that's, that's I think, a second pastoral implication, that, that belief in hell can lead to some inhuman interactions whereas confidence in God's love leads to a different kind of interaction that I think are, is more human. Well, we live in a time when there's lots of people dealing with despair. There's opioid drug use and different kinds of destructive behaviors that people embrace just out, I think, of a, of a sense of despair and despondency. And so we need a hope, not just for ourselves, but for the world that can sustain us. You know, and that's the kind of hope that can deliver us from our own personal hells and from the sort of corporate hells that we that we can construct in this world. So I wanted to do what I could to put out in the world that it is possible to be Christian and have this hope. And so I'm happy to find scholars at the PhD level, such as yourself, who can help us to have confidence that this really is something that's part of the Christian tradition, it's part of our heritage, and that it is a perfectly fine way to be Christian and a way to live very hopefully and confidently in the world. So I, I want to thank you for your scholarship, for the article that you wrote, and uh, I look forward to maybe a further conversation sometime. I think you have a lot to say, and I appreciate you taking your time today to visit with us. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It was, it was great to be here. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Dr. Brennan. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.